Broadcasting from high above the reserve, this is Radio Harambe. And thank you, as always, for tuning in to Radio Harambe. I'm Dave McBride, broadcasting from the Radio Harambe studios. Uh, and joining me on the other side of the continent is Safari. Mike, Mike, you are in sunny Las Vegas, are you not? I am, Dave. Are, <laughs> you, uh, are you at the craps table as we speak? or There are no craps tables anymore, Dave. Oh, Everything geez. is shut down completely. Even the craps tables. Wow. Even the craps tables. I mean, that's how you know. That this is bad. There's no craps table. What are we going to do? Uh, Before we get going, we want to make sure everybody remembers we have a uh, store on TeePublic. Look at the link in the show notes. Look at the link on the Instagram page uh, for Disney's Animal Kingdom. Look on our Jumbo Everyone Facebook page. Mike's at Jumbo Everyone on Twitter. The links are all there. Uh, all the money we're making is still going towards uh, helping relief for the animals and the wildlife affected by the incredible brush fires in Australia. Uh, Australia is now also under a lockdown with this virus thing, so they're uh, they're really uh, <laughs> taking it in the chin here, like a lot of us are. So. Um, what I thought we would do, Mike, is um, over the next couple of weeks, obviously <laughs> there's going to be no news from the Animal Kingdom as the parks are closed and I cannot foresee them opening anytime soon. Um, so we're going to try our best to put up as much content as we possibly can to get you Animal Kingdom fanatics uh, something to listen to and something to dream away for your Disney, yeah. uh, get your Disney fix here. Uh, so we're going to do our best. We've got a, lots of ideas for lots of stuff. And um, what do we have for today? Dave, today we are finally, I know I've been talking about this for a couple of months, I think. Long it feels time. Like, uh, we're going to be doing, you know, talking a deep dive into the landscaping of that Disney's Animal Kingdom. Probably... The most thought ever put into landscaping in any theme park anywhere <laughs> in the world is the thought put into this theme park's landscaping. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree, Dave. I would agree. <laughs> so they Mike has compiled stuff to go over. Mike has compiled an incredible amount of, of information here. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to let him have at it and then uh, interrupt him as we go along, as as is usually yeah. my my want. Time in whenever you want, Dave. I will. All right, shall I begin? Yes, go ahead. All right. Well, Dave, we all know that Disney loves to tell a story. And they like to do so in their theming and in their architecture. We see it all over Epcot and Magic Kingdom and even Disney's Hollywood Studios. But at the Animal Kingdom, plants are no different. At that park, Disney designers use horticulture just like they would buildings to tell a story. But you have to add in the complication that landscaping also needs to be functional. That is, many of the residents, giraffe and rhinos and whatnot, actually eat the landscaping. 
Now, on opening day, Dave, at Disney's Animal Kingdom, where we're four That doesn't happen plants. at Epcot, by the way. That does not happen yes. at Epcot. That is true. Nemo doesn't uh, eat the landscaping at Epcot. Pigment <laughs> doesn't eat the landscaping. Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Dave, on opening day, by, by, I, should, I should actually say by opening day, four million plants were added to the landscape of the park. 46,000 grass shoots were planted by that day. Harambe it by itself had 70,000 trees and nearly 800,000 bushes planted in the area itself. I'm assuming this also includes the Kilimanjaro Safari. Of course. Of course Good. it does. Good. Yes. <laughs> they began planting about two years in advance of the April 22nd, 1998 opening. Two years. And the idea was, uh, you know, all the people wanted the, the, the park to look like it had already been established, that it was there for a while. As we know, you know, Harambe is supposed to be, uh, you know, an old East African port uh, later on. And Nandapur was supposed to be a, uh, uh, a sort of an Indian village that had been there forever. They wanted the, the, the place to look like it had been there for a while. Um they wanted to, in fact, look centuries old in some instances. But even underneath you, Dave, out of public sight is even more landscaping. There are 60 miles of underground utility lines under you. Disney had to move more than 4 million cubic yards of earth to place all that stuff. And that also occurred about two years before the park opened to allow for nature to grow over two it. Two years. Yeah. I mean, Mike, they built all of Disneyland in less than two years. Correct. And Correct. we're just talking a, about planting plants. Correct. Landscapers set some world, uh, so, some Walt Disney records. They laid twenty-five uh, with the uh, construction of the Animal Kingdom. They laid twenty-five thousand feet of pipe in one day, and four thousand <laughs> square feet of earth moved in one day. Both records were WDI. Unbelievable. That's now, one name—it's an amazing yeah. number when you think about it, because mm -hmm. you know all that irrigation and all that stuff has to be done. I mean, it's it's it's. Mind-numbing. Yeah, a lot of stuff got shuffled around before uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom opened. And uh, one of the principal guys behind that was Paul Comstock, which is a name, Dave, keep in mind when we do another Hall of Fame. I was just going to uh, say that. <laughs> As an aside, we've gotten some feedback on that. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not. I but, have not. But anyway, all right, it's on Twitter. Anyway, Paul Comstock was the principal landscape architect who actually came on board in 1996. Again, two years before the park opened. He was quoted as saying, the design challenge facing us is to help tell the story, the natural story, and landscape becomes the show in many areas. It is the set, it is the show. And Comstock, like Joe Rohde, traveled the world to sort of research this set, for lack of a better term. He visited Madagascar, South Africa, Tanzania, Tasmania, China, Indonesia, Thailand, Singapore, all over the world, he visited to see what things look like, to get a feel for what it would be like at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And also he collected seeds and shoots to be actually used in the park. The designers also planted many, many full-grown trees. Again, they wanted it to look like the trees had been there for many years. And Disney also designed what they called accelerators. This spread growth on their own farms. It was developed by Bill Evans, and trees can actually mature within a year using that. It uses perforated, corrugated aluminum rings filled with nutrient-rich soil. Sort of kind of like a uh, living with the land kind of look to it, Dad, where they would help right. you know, boost the trees and make them grow faster. Now, Disney's at uh, Disney Animal Kingdom also used a berm. Do you know what a berm is, Dad? Of course I know what a berm is. A berm is a like uh, an upland, uh, 
Very good. Uh, like a like a hilly area to sort of keep your eyes, um, you know, focused into what they want you to focus in. Right. So like in the Magic Kingdom, they used it to hide the real world. They did that here, too. You well, can't basically see out of the park. Yes. Learned especially by the builders of Disneyland who had to figure out a way to uh, keep people from seeing the kitschy hotel sign across the street. Right, right, right. So you can't see out. It also actually also gives them space to plant additional plants and trees. Essentially, the berm became kind of like a storage area for new trees and plants in case they were needed elsewhere in the park. Plants, Dave, are also used to actually direct traffic. This, of course, is true along the trails that we will get to in a few minutes. But planters are also used to direct traffic, for example, on the way out of the park to the parking lot and the trams. And if you look, Dave, from the sky, the colors on the entrance, it looks like a tree from the sky. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Yeah, yeah. The Rainforest Cafe itself, the marquee itself acts as a planter helping establish sort of the feel of the entrance to the park and the oasis. Um, the cafe also uses a lot of water. Um, the building used water, used to have waterfalls coming off, but they the, the trees got so big, the landscaping got so it's such in the way it obscured it, and now That's some smaller right. fountains are used. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah. Wow. So it used to be a little different. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of like Kilimanjaro safaris and stuff back from when it first opened. It looks different from a landscaping point of view. Yeah, you know, it's it, it grows so slowly, you don't see it. You have to see these old pictures and stuff, especially if you see the old pictures of, like, uh, uh, you know, the, the main savanna part. You could see, uh, you know, if you look at that picture the next time you go on the ride, you'll see how, how much the trees have grown and there's more co- cover there than there, one, than there was in the beginning. You know, it was much more um, kind of open look to it mm-hmm. in the beginning. Dave, let's go inside the park. Let's start with okay. the oasis and now, of course, here is the transition between the real world and the animal kingdom. You sort of go from, you know, the cars and the trams, and the parking lots. And now you're sort of those are no longer really visible. And that's a, a large part thanks to the landscaping. You are surrounded by trees, plants, waterfalls, uh, all strategically placed to create a feel that you're actually stepped out of the real world into the this, uh, jungle. Yeah, an it also helps. Effect. An amazing yeah, and the, effect. And the landscape actually also helps to break, uh, you know, black black out the sounds from the front entrance. You don't hear the cars. That's right. You don't hear the trams. Now there are some some particular plants I want you to take a look at when you are next time you're in the oasis. Oh, you're going to tell One us about the, plants? I am, Dave. Okay. One of them is the epiphytes. These are plants that are used extensively in the oasis, and they require no soil to grow. Instead, now, how can that be possible. It attaches to other plants such as trees. And you see them here in the oasis, not only in the trees, but also on the rocks. But it is not a parasite. That is, it doesn't like draw away right, right, like a nutrients. Yeah. Right. It doesn't draw away nutrients from the plant that's uh, it's on. Instead, what it does, it, it draws nutrients from the air, rain, and actually the accumulating debris at its base. So if it sits on a rock, for example, as debris gets flushed from the and down the rock, accumulates in sort of the uh, on the plant itself as as debris. Can you put it in for, your salad? Uh, I don't know how uh, tasty they are, but sure. <laughs> ferns are also common in the oasis, Dave. Underneath the leaves of ferns, you will find clumps of spores spores called sori. Ferns reproduce by releasing enormous quantities of, of these spores into the air, and it creates like a dust-like powder. And this spore dust was actually thought to be magical by ancient civilizations, and it kind of gives... Um, the oasis kind of a magical uh, backstory. 
Some thought, for example, that these this this dust made warriors invulnerable, and others thought it was sort of like a love potion. Another thing you can look for, Dave, in the everything's oasis, a love potion, Mike. <laughs> another thing you can look for here, and I'm going to give you a couple more flowers. Is there are pink flowers on a vine? That is a garlic vine, and they are found in the West Indies and Central America. And guess why it's called that, Dave? Because you can put it on your salad. No, because if you crush the flower itself, it has a really strong, pungent garlic smell. Is that true? That's it is funny. True. That's funny. One last plant I want to talk about that you see a lot in the oasis, and that is orchids. And of course, you know everybody knows orchids, and you know when you go to a florist, you might see orchids. But the orchid is actually the largest plant family in the world. There are somewhere between twenty-five and thirty thousand different species of wow. orchids in the world. Many, many are critically endangered due to habitat loss. Um, but Dave, before we move on, anything you want to touch on about the oasis well, and the uh, landscaping there? Just that you know, first is really the most uh, impressive when it comes to landscaping. I mean, that the, the oasis is basically. Uh, created and imagined in the backstory and all that is based upon its landscaping. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's supposed to be you leaving the modern world and walking into the woods, you know, like a kid who uh, leaves their yard behind and steps into the woods for the first time. That's kind of what they, what they wanted to make here out of the Oasis. And, and um, uh, the landscaping is the thing that does that more than anything else. And it's really, you know, the if you're going to think of an area that you think of landscaping, it's the oasis. It's so lush and so um, incredible looking and, and so over the top, really. If you s sit around and look around and realize all of those things are not there originally. They're all, you know, put there for this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the, it's the best example of how important a role um, landscaping plays. Although there's other great examples that you're going to get to for sure, but this is the this is the uh, I think they're really the the gold standard of of using landscaping for the story of the area. Sure, and another thing they use here at landscaping, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we delve into the trails a little bit later. But the you know, landscaping is such an integral part of the zoological exhibits themselves. Right. right so right, they right, use right. landscaping to hide the various um, you know. For example, hide the backstage areas where the Correct. animals go to. Hide, um, you know, where one exhibit glows to another. Um, you know, in the old days, zoos would just have fences there, but now right. they use landscaping instead of that to make it create a more of a natural feel. Yeah, yeah, they do, and that's a, they do an amazing job with that. And mo a lot of zoos have have taken that cue and go to that kind of thing now. Um, you see, a, you see a lot of those sort of uh, hidden planters or hidden feeders, and sure, things like that, all over the place now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, are we are we walking in order? Are we going to Discovery Island next? We are, Dave. This, of course, is the hub of the park. We all know that. And throughout this area, you'll see clay pots throughout the Discovery Island, and they hold plants. But there, there's a backstory to these pots as well. These were built by the original ancient inhabitants of Discovery Island. Those early people came to the island because of the remarkable tree of life. That's the backstory, the conceit of the island. And the main influence of the island is actually Bali, but there are also touches of the Caribbean as well. And it's very colorful from both of those areas. And the conceit, as I was saying, is that these nomadic people traveled the world and they came upon this island that had this amazing tree and decided to stay. And they created the stone statues and clay pots that you see throughout the uh, the park, oh, throughout the, the, the Discovery Island, in reverence of the tree. 
The pots themselves are designed to look primitive, and in many instances, they almost look like a cartoon, creating a whimsical style to the island, which is carried out throughout the colorful design of the buildings. Plants and planters help create that feel, that kind of whimsical um, Caribbean Bali kind of influence of the area. One example, of course, is Flame Tree Barbecue, and there is a great amount of planting and landscaping at Flame, Flame Tree Barbecue. You'll see those clay pots that I was told, talking about. But you also see a large plant at the sign, but uh, but that's actually for crowd control reasons. Um, they used to be a huge um, sort of landscaping around the sign for Flame Tree Barbecue, but because it was such a nuisance for crowds, they actually took it away. Now they're just sort of some several co- you know pots around there. The dining area is filled with beautiful gardens, water, trees, plants, sculptures, kind of make it a great place to sit down and eat. Even if you're not eating, it's a great place to sit down. And again, potted plants are, are, are all over the place as well there, too. And, and there's ancient, you know, um, pots that they used. It creates sort of like a kinetic area where things seem to be growing naturally. Plus, you actually get amazing t- views of the tree of uh, Everest down by the water. Sure. Um, the Tree of Life, Dave. Landscapers use plants to actually flame, uh, frame, excuse me, frame the tree from the front. So if you look at the uh, Tree of Life, you look at how the landscapers frame the tree, drawing your eyes to the Tree of Life. They're like, there's lots of planting around it, and there's it's almost like a tunnel, tunnel vision going okay. right to the Tree of Life to make it even more spectacular. And of course, on the path surrounding the tree, plants there are purposely overgrown in areas to make it seem more wild but it also makes it a quiet space and blocks views from the of the crowds or from blocks views of the crowds walking around the island walking in the tree of life gardens for example is some of the quietest spaces in the animal kingdom but you are literally in the center of the park with thousands of people all around you Along the tree paths uh, here are many different types of plants one is the egyptian paper reed which is a plant, a, pan, a, a plant found along the river. It, its leaves give it sort of an, like an umbrella appearance, but it is important to history, Dave. And do you know what that is? The Egyptian paper reed? The Egyptian what? Paper reed. Paper uh, reed. Maybe they made paper with it. Dave, if you remember in Spaceship Earth, there's that scene of the pharaohs and the, yeah. the guy grinding paper. That is the ancient. That is the Egyptian paper reed. He is grinding it up, flattening it. I thought they wrote everything on the walls of things. (laughs) They created paper, Dave, back in ancient Egypt. Those Egyptians, man, they also created beer, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) Dave, around the Tree of Life is the Discovery River, and there are 27 million gallons of water in the river. Man-made, but of course, Florida has a. It is a man-made river, but mm-hmm. Florida, of course, has a lot of groundwater and rain. Right. And the river actually itself can change its level about a foot and a half in a day, depending on rain and That's all that amazing. kind of stuff. Therefore, anything built in the river, any type of you know uh, construction for the river itself, has to actually be 18 inches below the waterline or risk being exposed to the public view. So landscapers mm-hmm. had to put various, you know, whatever they used to create this man-made river. Right. Keep it out of public view is actually built 18 inches below the waterline. That's crazy. I'm going to move to Dinoland, Dave, awesome. unless you have anything to add. 
No, I, I mean, obviously the most, uh, you know, the tree is not real. <laughs> well, it's, yes. It's fiberglass and plastic. Uh, and, and It's an oil rig. As they, uh, it's an oil. It's, a, it's an upside. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. Uh, an old u- used part of an oil of a oil offshore oil rig. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing construction. You should see the way that's done. Um, I guess other than that, no. The only thing that kind of sticks out for me in this area is just again in my mind, I can see how much more vegetation is there now than was when I first walked into mm-hmm. uh, Discovery Island. It just seems to be shadier, more cover. You know, and it's gonna that's gonna change throughout the years. And that's the amazing part about it. Okay, so we're going heading towards Dino Land, going over the bridge into Dino Land. So what do we have now? Dinosaurs ate trees, so that's always good. <laughs> they did, and well, at least some of them did. But Dave, there and there's actually a heavy use of deciduous trees here, and these were imported mm. from the American Southwest, which is sort of the the uh, theme of uh, Dino Land for people who have d- don't know that. And this is actually best seen around the old hunting lodge, which is now, of course, Restaurantosaurus. At the Dino Institute, they replaced the natural forest of the American Southwest. So, again, you're supposed to be in the American Southwest. But at the Dino Institute, they replaced that, quote, unquote, natural forest with uh, the use of tropical plants to sort of make it give it a theme that it was back in the Cretaceous area. So you're. You replaced Florida with the Southwest and then the Southwest with the jungle. Um, The statues of dinosaurs leading up to the Institute, of course, complete that theme. Now, uh, just just please, because my seventh grade um, uh, science is a little iffy. Deciduous means they drop their leaves, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Now, so there's fewer leaves on the trees in the winter in, in, in Dino Land than there is in other places? doesn't That's really amazing. work that way in Florida as much oh. because it doesn't get that cold. I got you. But yes. All right. All right. Now, they actually, the top of the Institute, um, the signs of the Institute use sago palms, which is not actually a palm. Instead, it's a cicad. And these plants evolved during the time of dinosaurs and survived to this day. They outlasted the dinosaurs. And actually, pith found in the plant is actually an edible starch and is used to make food in Africa. Now, that's one of the things that I remember about hearing about the vegetation and the landscaping done in the, in the making of this is that in, um, in Dino Land, they were using, you know, essentially dinosaur era <laughs> plants, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first, we'll go to Chester and Hester's. All right. Because here, plants are used as theme as well, or at least planters. Chester and Hefferson, cool. of course, opened a gas station way before the fossils were found nearby by the boneyard. And when the Institute moved in and started buying up property all around, the old couple were the only holdouts. So instead, they transformed their gas station into a roadside attraction. And the planters reflect that backstory as well. Tires and old cans are used as planters throughout the area. So, you know, when you take a look at that when you're around, deciduous trees and shrubs from the native southwest are also found in those planters. Now, if you move over to the Cretaceous Trail, which is sort of what we were talking about a few moments ago, this area is themed to be a small trail designed by the people at the Dino Institute. Of course, Dave, as you were saying, not everything from the age of dinosaurs went extinct. Many plants like the sago palms and other uh, cichids and ferns uh, come from that time. And Keith Richards. And And Keith Richards. And Disney planted some of them so that you could walk through a uh, forest much like a dinosaur would have you know, 65 million years ago. Right. 
To complete this theme, um, like others in the park, animals can be found. But, it can, of course, there are no dinosaurs. Instead, it's in the form of bronze statues. The beginning has an... And here we go, Deb. I know you how you'll be love when I try to pronounce these things. Yes. An ornithominus, which <sighs> is the uh, dinosaur at the very beginning of the Cretaceous Trail. And farther along is a Corythosaurus, which is that sort of duck... <laughs> Bill kind of dinosaur that's just sitting there. Must have, and you can climb all by, over. must have been discovered by somebody named Corey. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Sickens, as we were talking about before, were found are found uh, are found there in the Cretaceous Trail. They're from California and Florida. Uh, that trail is much shorter than other trails, but it can be you know a nice little area uh, when they're not doing meet and greets, which seems to be popular now at the uh, oh, yeah. the Cretaceous Trail yeah, for yeah, years yeah. or even decades. It was just sort of a off the beaten path, very quiet right. area, but now it's uh, Chippendale and Donald that can be found. Yeah, all especially the time. that first little area with the uh-huh. with the dinosaur you can climb on there. That's uh, that that has been uh, hijacked for meet and greets. For <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, Sickens Dave are seed plants from the age of dinosaurs. They have stout trunks and pinnet leaves. They kind of like uh, uh, leaves on each side of a spine of the branch, and they kind of like identical on each side. Um, which means – and um, some can live for thousands of years. So individual plants can live for thousands of years. I'm trying to remember what they look like. I'm trying to see it in my head, but I'll look it up. If you look up pinnate, P-I-N-N-A-T-E, leaves, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. They are primitive in that their seeds are open to the air. There are no fruit, you know, no nothing like that to, to protect them. This makes it a gymnosperm plant with no flowers or fruits to protect the seeds and were much more common in the age of dinosaurs but there are of course species living there now i did look it up and it is exactly what one would think of as an ancient plant yes yeah <laughs> not far from uh the chester and hester's and the cretaceous trail is the theater in the wild um, for those who don't know, the reason it was called Theater in the Wild at, at the very beginning of this park was that the theater was actually not part of any land. Right. It was in the wild. Right. Uh, and Disney uses trees and lots of them to obscure the building from guests' view and sort of blend it into the landscaping. There are also plants all along the side of the building. And if you look at the building, you will see similar plants that are in, actually engraved into the walls. Uh, that are actually planted right outside of the building to try to make it seem like a seamlessness between the landscaping oh, and the yeah. building itself. They do that a lot. You, you, you get that kind of flow, visual mm-hmm. flow that they use with these things. Now, Dave, if you're ready, uh, we and we're going to keep going past the theater to Asia, I would imagine. We, we are going to Asia. Now, Dave, in the Himalayas, Asia. there's not a lot of vegetation. <laughs> no, there's not a lot of vegetation, Dave. And Asia is divided, of course, into two distinct villages. Uh, there's Anandapur, which is the area by the Jungle Trek, and right. there is Shirkazong. And we'll talk about Shirkazong first, because that's the one we're going to hit to first. Okay. Shirkazong is up in the Himalayan mountains, and it is a small town. And this is a traveler's stop before beginning their adventures into the mountains. The climate here is much drier by conceit than it is in Anandapur. There's no river cutting through the town, which we'll talk about in a minute. And you can see this in the landscaping, but also in the efforts of the locals and their attempting to conserve water. You see that all over the area, these little devices and buckets and things where the the, uh, people who live in Shirkazan are trying to grow or just trying to conserve water. 
tea is a major product of, of uh, the area, and you'll actually see tea plants throughout Anandapur. The Anandapur Tea, or excuse me, Shirkazang. The Anandapur Tea Company, which is, of course, a reference you see throughout this area, gets much of its tea here. And the train company is shipping tea from there down to Anandapur for it to grow. Another plant seen here in this area is bamboo. Bamboo is uh, might look like a tree, but it's actually a grass, and it grows fast. And I mean really fast. One species was tr- timed at growing two inches in one hour. What? Disney pl- yes. Disney planted these, clump- planted these in clumps with planters because if they didn't, bamboo would have taken over the whole area That's in no time, no time at all. You can see bamboo in single clumps throughout the town, which is uh, not actually how it grows in nature. Right. Bam- bamboo has many unique fe- features, Dave. Let me just talk about a, a couple of them. They come in many shapes and sizes. Some are only a few inches high. Others grow up to 120 feet in, in height. And that's a grass. That's 120 feet high. The cane itself of the of the bamboo rivals steel in its ability to withstand forces of up to 52,000 pounds per inch. Insane. No, no other natural resource compares to its use from food to medicine to furniture. It is used to make paper. It was even used as filament by Edison in the first light bulb and as the needle by Alexander Graham Bell in his first phonograph. There are perhaps 5,000 different uses of bamboo worldwide. That's incredible. And that is Shirkazan. And we're going to mosey on over to uh, Anandapur. And Anandapur, of course, as I was talking about, is much more tropical, much more lush. And that is because it is not in the mountains. And it is the Chakranada River which can not only be seen in the Gibbon exhibits, but is also uh, the Kali River Rapids. Right. You're moving along the Chakranadi. Uh, this fake river comes from the snow melts from the nearby Himalayan mountains, which you can, of course, see in the distance. And the river flows throughout Anandapur and is actually the lifeblood of the ancient kingdom itself. The village itself brings about the major theme of the entire park, and that is that nature is taking back civilization. Uh, this is seen throughout the land, but most specifically in the Maharaja Jungle Trek, which we'll talk about in a minute, where the old palace of the Raja, Rajas is being taken back over. Right. The jungle's return, thanks to conservation member, uh, measures, is a constant battle for the townsfolk, as you see throughout the park, and in the use of landscaping. For example, look at the pavement. In some spots, there are cracks, and the, they actually even had plants growing uh, and trees springing forth from the landscape, uh, from the uh, from the pavement. This is all part of the landscaping. This is all part of the landscaping, trying to tell the story of an end park uh, going back to nature. Um, even over at the new Upshow, you can see trees breaking through the stone structure, framing the stage. Again, landscaping used to tell the story. Out front of uh, Up is a large tree with all the prayer flags. We've all seen it. Beautiful. There's a bench there. And here a tree has broken through. This ancient sculpture, it is a Bodhi tree. And in Buddhism, it is called the tree of awakening. It was under such a tree that apparently Buddha himself first became enlightened. Therefore, that nice? in that in that part of the world, they are sacred. That's why you have a uh, placement of all the prayer flags, flags all right? over throughout its branches. branches excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Look at a that tree differently also- now. If with that information, folks, you look yeah. at that differently now. A tree also wrecked one of the ruins of the Gibbons exhibit. It's breaking through the structure. And uh, the scaffolding there is there for 
a reason. Do you know why there's always scaffolding in the Gibbon and Siamang exhibits? Other than for the animals to climb on, the impression that I've always been given is that it is under construction, being restored or something like that. Very good. The scaffolding is here because town folk are trying to restore the ruins. However, it is perpetually raining season (laughs) and flooding from the river has taken over these spots. So the workers are taking the, uh, you know, a couple of months off until the rains come down. And the, guy, the Gibbons and the Siamangs have kind of moved in to take advantage of the scaffolding for uh, fun. And like um, construction workers, uh, you know, in New Jersey, uh, they've been on uh, a break for, since 1998. No, I'm just joking. Sorry. <laughs> Dave, let's move into the jungle trek itself. Okay. Here there is thick growth everywhere. A tree near the Komodo exhibit is uh, hundreds of years old. Its thick roots have grown everywhere, creating an interesting area for the Komodo to live and lounge in. And again, they use landscaping to yeah. create and help make an animal exhibits. Now, rocks in this area, you can see, are being consumed by the plants. When you get to the back, uh, the bat exhibit, look for a black flowering pat plant. This is called, oddly enough, the black bat flower and is found only in Southeast Asia. It is one of the few black flowering plants in the world. This sort of purplish black flowers are very alien looking if you have a, ever get a chance to look I, I at them. I don't remember seeing them. I'll have to look that up. And they kind of resemble bats, which is uh, hence where they get the name. The next area after the bats is, of course, the hunting grounds of King Bima Dismapati. This is the tiger exhibit. And your viewing area was the old hunting blind where the Rajah would wait in silence and try to draw in the tigers to, for his kill. The grounds here are finely manicured as opposed to other parts of the uh, jungle trek. And that is on purpose. And the landscaping, again, is here to tell the story. And that is that you're in these hunting grounds of the old Raja. Right. The, the, the Raja wanted it la- that way. However, there are parts around it where nature is sort of reclaiming the gardens along the sides of the paths, for example, as you're walking from the Komodo to the bats and in, eventually into the uh, the hunting grounds. You'll see what was once a little garden with a stone wall that's completely disarray as nature is taking it over. And then fountains used in the exhibit of the tigers is on purpose. The Rajahs knew that tigers, unlike other big cats, loved water. So he built these fountains in in an effort to draw the tigers in. So where you're standing, which is where he would have been with his hunting equipment, he would have killed the tigers uh, as they came into the fountains. Um, it was fun for him to watch, uh, to hunt, but for you, of course, it's fun to watch. And um, sometimes, Dave, you actually see in the background black buck that appear to be almost in the same exhibit as the tiger. Yeah, I love and that. We were talking about this a little bit before. This is a common technique used in zoos today. Hidden moats behind hills yeah. actually separate the, uh, the exhibits of animals. So the black buck is actually in a separate exhibit. You just can't tell because there's a moat behind a little hill they must Uh, parade back and forth you know mm -hmm. just to just to torture them like cats do to dogs right and the black buck of course in india is a frequent target for uh, tiger hunts and here they're in the same fight line for the guests but one can't get to the other um and the theme of reclamation is most prevalent in the avery uh this was once the grand ballroom of the rajah's uh, rajah's palace and the murals are all from the Grand Ballroom, all bird-themed. And now real birds have taken over. 
There was a great fountain in the center of the ballroom, which is now kind of dirty and um, used by the birds for uh, you right. know water. Uh, it was what's the focal point of the ballroom now being taken over by the jungle. But Dave, do you know how the birds stay in the area of all, all this? These fountains in the ballroom. There's not a little cage or something. You're actually in a giant bird cage. That's what I thought. Yeah. Disney uses the landscaping to hide the netting that's all around you and above you. You can see it if you look hard. Yeah, you got to really but it, look. But it's hard to t- if you're just casually walking through it, you won't tell because the thick jungle foliage is a perfect way to obscure the fact that you are in fact in a giant. Uh, bird cage. There's some amazing uh, this, aviaries throughout the world, but this is one of the few that does that as well as they do. I've been in a bunch mm-hmm. of really great aviaries, but you know you're in one, you know. Right. For example, uh, the San Diego Zoo has a f- couple of huge ones, much <laughs> Gigantic, bigger than this. Unbelievably big, yeah. But, you know, you're walking through cages to get into the cage. So right. you, you know exactly where you are. This technique, of course, is also used at the Gorilla Falls, the same kind of idea where they use uh, landscaping to block the aviary. Speaking of Gorilla Falls, you ready to move over to Harambe? Uh, quick question. Uh, I know not yeah, all sure. of the rocks are fake uh, in these things. Some of the rocks are real, but because I've been told mm-hmm. that. But um, I can only imagine that the rock that the Komodo dragon sits on must be fake because he seems to be on the same rock all the time. Yeah, and what uh, Disney uses and all zoos use these are heated rocks, right? So that you know they warm up. Uh, Komodo obviously being a lizard, obviously being cold-blooded, which means they don't uh, regulate their own heat. Yeah, they, right. They don't produce their own heat. Um, it's not that they're cold; their blood is actually cold. It's that they need the atmosphere, the sun, to warm right. it up, and uh, or heat rocks. And those rocks are heated rocks. And of course, Disney places them in strategic areas so that I mean, they're not going to place them behind a bush, for example, so that you can't see the Komodo. They'll place it out in the open. Again, using landscape to draw the animal out and invisible, right. uh, or to be visible, I should say, uh, for the guest. So now we're continuing down the river to Harambe. We're going to Harambe, Dave. Harambe, as we all know, is the fictional is a fictional port in East Africa. Its climate climate is hot with seasonal rain, and the landscaping here reflects that. There are plants throughout the town, but the, due to the climate, it's not nearly as lush. As an Andapur, there's a very distinct difference between what you feel when you're in an Andapur as to what you feel when you're in Harambe in terms of the landscaping. In the town, you will find a sausage tree. Today, the tree is primarily grown for ornamental purposes, but the fruit actually does have its uses, David. And the sausage tree, of course, you can see within the behind Tamu Tamu. Although the fruit's liquid is actually poisonous, the flesh can be turned into an alcoholic beverage similar to beer. And the gourds and sausage or sausages, um, they're actually not sausages, they just look like them, they're gourds, are used by locals to make herbal medicines that are believed to cure anything from snake bites to syphilis to rheumatism. Uh, Although, of course, they really don't. Um, Kilimanjaro Safari, of course, Dave, makes great use of landscaping. You start off in the forest where we find okapi, bongos, and black rhinos. And here the plants create a canopy. This shades the road. It makes you actually feel like you're in a thick forest. So by creating shade, it makes it look or feel more like you're in a forest as opposed to the savanna, which is, of course, much different. Plants are much lower, creating an open view on the grasslands of the savanna. And Disney uses landscaping in the form of trees to block the view of savanna until it's actually time for the guests to sort of be awed by this open area. And the the trees here 
help create the show by blocking your view as you're going through see the, the black rhinos and the crocodiles and the hippos. You, of course, come right. out to this big, wide-open savanna. You're up on a hill, and all of a sudden, you get through the trees, and you have this gorgeous view. Um, but trees, Dave, aren't the only landscape that's being used here. Disney landscapers wanted to create an old dirt road, but, of course, what you're driving on is not dirt. Landscapers <laughs> spent a long time trying to get concrete to actually look like a dirt road that you would typically find in a savanna. Grasses, as you probably realize, are obviously common here. There are more than 7,000 species of grasses, ranging from lawn grass to giant baboo in the world. They don't have flowers or fruits to draw in pollinators for their seeds. Instead, wind is used in uh, grasses to help spread their seeds and sweep them across the plains. Wow. Uh, the stems of a grass are quite fibrous and often dig deep into the ground which make of grass the nature's first defense to erosion. Plants and rocks are especially important in the savanna, Dave. They are used to hide food. Instead of having giant metal bowls you know, out throughout the savanna, right. feeders are actually hidden from view by rocks and shrubs. Plants that are actually food are p placed in these feeders each night. Animals can then eat away, not necessarily eating the quote-unquote show plants. Right. It's, instead, they're eating the plants that are in these special deposits, and these are easily removed and replaced constantly without the guests, guests actually ever even seeing them. So um, this is another technique of landscaping used to help with the show. Uh, one such structure like this are termite mounds that you see throughout the savanna. Uh, spoiler alert, those are not real termite mounds. No, they're concrete. They're, no, yeah. they're concrete. There are no... There are no termites there. I, I think the animals still do eat some of the show trees, though. They do eat some of the show trees. They have to be careful. You know. I don't think there's any way they you can them, avoid that. No, but they give them plenty of other food so that uh, they eat as little as possible. Better food, yeah. yeah. There are only very few plants that actually get pointed out to the public by Disney. One, of course, is the baobab tree. And this is you know, one such tree you see when you first come onto the savanna. Yeah, they talk about it all the time. It's like, it looks like mm -hmm. an upside-down tree. It's also made it of concrete. Is, it is also made of concrete. The baobab tree actually leaves, um, actually, uh, you know, bears leaves about three months out of the year, uh, a reflection of the seasonal rainy season in that part of Africa. The, their huge, bulbous trunks hold water. In fact, they hold thousands of gallons of water for the tree to survive. And it survives for a very long time. They can live over a thousand years. Unbelievable. But unfortunately, Dave, none of the none of the baobab trees that you see in Disney's Animal Kingdom are real. There used to be an actual baobab tree right near Kusafiri Bakery, but it is no longer there. Why not? Um, it was dying, and they got rid of it. Oh, really? So the fruit the fruit of the baobab tree actually contains more than three times of the amount of vitamin C that you find in or oranges. And the leaves are used locally in Africa as relishes and spice. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Another well-known uh, tree of the savanna is the Akisa tree. Uh, this is um, – it's known for its sort of flat-looking uh, top of the tree. I, you've probably seen them in pictures of Africa. They kind of have a very small uh, you know, um, uh, trunk that leads into a wide, you know, wide leaves and this very flat-looking on top. Um, Disney actually doesn't have any, although you might think they do from what you see 
on the savanna. But actually, those are highly manicured oak trees that are made to look like them. <laughs> there is also, Dave, in that part of the world, the fever tree. And this is a medium-sized tree with sort of a yellowish trunk, and it's found along the riverbeds and floodplains. Um, it is one of the few trees where the bark actually performs the photosynthesis as opposed to the leaf. Jeez. And it is called the fever tree because it is found near rivers where there are lots of mosquitoes. And people used to think that it was the tree giving them uh, various um, diseases. Rather than and the not, bugs. <laughs> not, rather than the bugs. So it's called the fever tree. Rather than the mosquitoes. Let's move into Gorilla Falls, Dave, because okay. there are copy. When you first get in there, there's okapis. And this is one of the animals that you sort of referenced begin at the uh, a few moments ago because okapis like to eat everything so landscapers are very careful to keep plants from florida that may be toxic to them out of this exhibit uh, and the landscaping of course in the gorilla falls is much more lush it's more like the jungle trek and it's thick and uh with the okay. uh, jungle trees and you're feeling like you're in the fun in, in the jungle as opposed to uh the savannah and disney um uses landscaping here to tell a story as well the rainforest is a conservation area, so it is much like a national park. It's untouched by civilization, very different from the story that's being told in the Jungle Trek. And again, it's the landscaping that tells the story. In Gorilla Falls, it's a more pure jungle, you know, forest. You're walking through a, a forest. You feel like you're in an undisturbed natural forest, where, of course, in the Jungle Trek, they have all the ruins from uh, ancient Anandapur, intersprinkled with the uh, jungle to give that the different story now in research in the research hut landscaping is also used to tell a story there was a hill next to the hut and when it was being constructed workers this is the conceit obviously uncovered naked mole rat colonies in that hill so oh, instead of instead of continuing on and just destroying the hill the workers actually put up a glass and left the colonies alone for the students of the conservation school to study, and of course for the guests to see. That's funny. That's a little story detail they really didn't need to need to do, but I get it. <laughs> no, but and there's no way for the actual guests to really figure that out. Right, it's right, hard. Right. right. Um, so that's what uh, Radio Harambe is here for. That's exactly um, right. <laughs> the hut, Dave, is um, the hut is actually um, um, uh, leads the aviary. Excuse me. Here, Disney landscapers created a water, waterfall and a running stream, and this accomplishes two goals. First, it allows the exhibiting of rare chiclet fish from the lakes of Af Africa, particularly Lake Victoria, but it also splits the exhibit into two. So there's a – with a river going through the middle of this aviary. Okay. Zoo, zoo, zoo designers have found over the course of the last few decades that using water in the middle of an exhibit draws one attention to the center of the exhibit. And in an aviary, it creates an open space so that you can better view the songbirds and the trees. Mm -hmm. So it, it performs a couple of different functions. Um, one being it's you know splits the exhibit in two and kind of centers your 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 eyes to the middle of the exhibit. And the other is sort of creates this open space so that you can see the birds flying back and forth, which is a lot easier to see along a river than it is in the middle of the uh, forest. Um, zoos ex have done this for a long time by creating little streams or whatnot in the middle of exhibits. They kind of draw your attention to the center of the exhibit. Cool. And you'll see that throughout uh, throughout zoological exhibits. Yeah, not I'm only thinking of how many times. But out, but out I'm thinking of how many times they use it there, too. I mean, you could you could, you could could hear, you could see water in the center of exhibits in, in more than one place. 
one place they do it, Dave, is actually the gorilla exhibit. That's right. Now, the gorilla exhibit is a terrific zoological exhibit. Now, in the wild, gorilla troops are led by a single dominant male, the silverback. As a young male in the group matures, he's kicked out of the troop by the silverback, and they often get together with other younger males to form bachelor groups hanging around the outskirts of the zoo's the troops range. Uh, as those bachelors mature, they may begin to challenge a, a troop silverback. Here, Disney has created two exhibits that is split by a moat and a water feature that is under a rope bridge. To your left, as you're walking over the rope bridge, is the bachelor group, and to your right is the family group. So Disney is using this landscaping to tell that story of you know how gorillas um, function in the wild of Africa. Also, by the way, Dave, here Disney landscapers created a hidden Jafar. I know we talked about this back when I did uh, <laughs> 10 Things You Didn't Know About Gorilla Falls. Right. But just if, just as you're beginning to cross the rope bridge, there's a stone wall on your right. If you step back and take a, a look at the whole wall, it's actually a profile of Jafar. Um, but, Dave, that is Harambe. Anything you want to talk about uh, Harambe before we move on yeah, to our quick, last two, little bit? Just two quick thoughts about Harambe. Um Number one is the Kilimanjaro safaris would not be as impressive and as incredible as it is without uh, the landscaping. It is the landscaping that really does the trick for telling the story and for where you're going. You, you know, mm-hmm. the different things like the savanna as opposed to, you know, past the, the big the, the, the lion rocks and and what the what the river area looks like is all really right. framed and um, told by the landscaping. And the other thing that I would say is before I said that uh, Discovery or the Oasis is the most impressive use of landscaping that you see where you just feel like you're in the middle of it. I would say if I were to, to pick a second best, it would be the gorilla exhibit where you really feel like you've gone into the jungle here with these gorillas. I mean, they and it's all based on the landscaping and the choices they make and the hills and the rivers and all the stuff that they've put in there. It's just off the hook. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one last spot to talk about is Rafiki's Planet Watch, Dave. Right. Of course, you take uh, the Wildlife Express out to Rafiki's Planet Watch, and here, landscaping helps hide the conservation station. You go on this long path between the train station and the actual uh, um, conservation station, and the forest separates the attraction with the trains uh, with the train station. The landscaping here is actually perfect, purposefully thick. <laughs> Not only for theme purposes, but at one point when you're walking on this trail leading to Conservation Station, you cross a big canal. uh, And one that you really can't see thanks to the foliage and the landscaping blocking it out. Uh, Plants, of course, are just as important as animals to the habitats of the world. And some of the exhibits at Rafiki's Planet Watts try try to demonstrate that specifically the song of the rainforest. And also along this path, you get to habitat or Habitat Habit, which uh, has some exhibits for you to see how you can share space with animals. And it, it uses uh, some signage to to help you um, when you go home in your yard to try to attract animals like songbirds and right. bats and butterflies. And they talk about hummingbird feeders and right. how you can provide food and water for you know your local animals to sort of create a habitat of your own in your backyard. 
And before we end, Dave, there's one other area not far from uh, Rafiki's Planet Watch, and it's out of the public view. And it's actually an area where Disney grows many, many plants, including hibiscus, akea, bamboo, that are used for animals. And it actually produces thousands of pounds of brows every year. Incredible. (laughs) Now, one part I didn't talk about too much is um, Avatar Land. Or at Um, all. Well, or at all. <laughs> we'll touch on that briefly now. Okay. Um, landscaping is, of course, used to tell the story of Avatar Land and of being in Pandora. And Disney uses um, fake landscaping here more than, than real to sort of tell that story. Lots of uh, fake plants are designed to make you feel like uh, you're on a, you have stepped onto right. an alien world. Right. Um, you could see they, some of the real ones kind of mm-hmm. around the fake ones, but yes, you, I mean, obviously there aren't, you know, glowing blue plants. Right. And, um, this is particularly true at night, as you were saying, where everything kind of lights up and the real Florida pant- plants are not really visible. You, what really stands right. out of course is the glowing blue plants exactly. or whatever, exactly. whatever else is glowing. But of course they use, uh, water features to a great extent here. Um, a lot of the plants around in and around the water features are fake. Um, there's not a lot of real ones there, um, but they do an excellent job of making it look real. Um, you know, you really feel like you've stepped onto an alien alien planet. And the do the real tree, the real plants that they actually use uh, blend in, I think, seamlessly with the fake ones. I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but that's that's how I think. Uh, I think they've done a great job with that. I mean, uh, it's a it was a tall order. It was definitely a difficult uh-huh. task, but they but uh, yeah, they've done a great job with that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, they use landscaping to all throughout uh, Avatar Land to create you know the waterfalls and uh, like the fake plants. Right. But also, there's actually a uh, a downed helicopter that. You barely can see because apparently down, you know, came down about a, a hundred years. What I think the uh, the war that's in that was seen in Avatar was supposed to take place about a hundred years Who knows? before you setting setting foot into uh, uh, Pandora, the world of Avatar. Right. So a helicopter went down during that war, and it is now obscured by the landscaping. It's very hard to see when you're first crossing over from Nomad Lounge. Look to your I believe it's to your right to see if you can see it, but it's, you know, the landscaping there is used to tell the story of Avatar, uh, the movie taking place a hundred or, you know, certainly in the distant past from when you were actually on the set of Avatar Land. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, even from the film, uh, the, the landscaping was a huge role in that, sure. uh, you know, and in the, in the way they set the set the scene there. But uh, that's it was a, certainly all fake in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> It's all digital. <laughs> mm. So is that it? That is it, Dave. All right, folks. So take this podcast the next time you go uh, to Animal Kingdom. Who knows when that's going to be? But the next time you can go there. <laughs> Not um, until June at the earliest. Bring, yeah, bring this podcast with you and walk around and you'll learn as we go all these things. It's amazing information, Mike. Thank you for that. Thank you. Anything we need to remember, don't forget, follow Mike on Facebook. Twitter, Jumbo Everyone, I'm at Radio Harambe. Uh, go to Facebook at Jumbo Everyone. And our Instagram page is actually Disney's Animal Kingdom. Do a lot of stuff on there. We've got a lot of great feedback from the Hall of Fame, 
we don't know when we're going to do that one again, but we got lots of other plans here for uh, great shows coming up. So stay subscribed. If you I got another rated... list coming up, Dave. I know you love my lists. Oh, yeah. We've got lots of lists. If you haven't rated <laughs> and reviewed us on iTunes or anywhere you can do that, please do so. And for everybody who has done giving us a five-star review so far, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. It really does help, and it really uh, gets the word out on the show. And we want to keep doing that as much as we can. Uh, we want to try to uh, f- feed the Disney addiction uh, during this uh, difficult time as much as Mike and I can possibly do and as often as we can. So uh, don't forget to go to our uh, Tee Public store. You'll find the link in the show notes. There's some great Animal Kingdom-themed stuff there. Thanks to Raising La- at Raising Las Vegas, Christina, for doing all that work for us. You're going to be hearing from her soon, too, I believe. Uh, in a yes. future show, but uh, let's not We're tease that rope her into coming on board with us for our show. Yes, yes, <laughs> we got another one of Mike's plans coming up here. So, so for Safari Mike, I'm Dave McBride. Quarini, go well, and thank you for listening to Radio Haram. <laughs> Now, Kungu, now, Utuku, Adam, Lele, Amita, Kwaku, Alfamelako, now, Kungu, now, Utuku, Adam.